and his wife. And they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons this thing, it says he drew up his feet in the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Listen to that phrase. This is only the beginning. He went to go continue life with those who walk with God. He was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians went from him seventy days, wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh and said, If I have found favor in your eyes, please speak to the ears of Pharaoh and say, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up, bury your father, as he has made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Just to pause to explain, the only land that Abraham ever got from the promised land was that little cave. God promised him the land. He never saw it all. But he died on the only plot of land that he properly owned to his name. Do you see how this works? God has promised you many precious and very great things. And you will see only seeds of them in this lifetime. The reason it's so important that he be buried back in that land is because it's the last testament of his faith of a dying man saying, that land is mine. Even though he even died in Egypt, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather never actually inherited it. But then again, death is only the beginning. In verse 15, we're told this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin before because of what they did to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. It says again, this is not the first time Joseph had done this in his life. Joseph wept. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. What we look at here for this moment, then even also closing next week is in this chapter of Genesis, is forgiveness. It ends with forgiveness. The book began with forgiveness. Adam and Eve sinned and God immediately told them that if they, die, they ate of the tree, they would die. And then they ate of the tree and they lived for a long time and then died. But there was this forbearance in God that he didn't actually bring death completely upon them. The book begins with forgiveness. The book ends with forgiveness. Here we see a recap of Joseph's life is that many years have passed from this moment of the death of their father. When he first revealed himself to his brothers. Perhaps you remember it's a few chapters ago in chapter 45 in which the brothers were presented before him and he finally broke out and said, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? He revealed himself to his brothers, the brothers who actually enslaved him in the pit and covered his garments with blood. Thought he was dead. Many, many years passed. He reveals himself. They consigned him to slavery, but them consigning Joseph to slavery in that pit only began a series of domino effects, processions in his life that actually fortuitously uh, resulted in the salvation of many. That Joseph realized the arc of his life, looking from the back forward, he can say now, God has used all of this to make me a servant so that I might bring salvation. I see it now, and it's clear. But when he first revealed that to his brothers, we were told in chapter 45 only this. Their response was, they could not answer him. For they were dismayed before his presence. That is, they were absolutely shocked that their little brother, who they thought were dead, is there, ruling over them. And they had nothing to say. Petrified. Dismayed. And then Joseph immediately responded and just said, Now don't be angry with yourself. Come here. And he wept over them. And it says he talked to them. Now, if you were to read that and think, Well, then there it is. Forgiveness. It was sufficient. We're left here with the impression that it was not. It actually was not sufficient. His brothers are looking for forgiveness. So what we'll see here, and then next week, is this idea of forgiveness. Here is the principle of forgiving one another. And I'm going to say a phrase that maybe you've never heard, and maybe you should never hear this phrase put together, but I'll say it for the practical reason of it. Forgiving God. Forgiving one another and forgiving God. The first one's real, the second one's a lie. But it feels real sometimes. If you've ever had significant suffering in your life. God is perfectly holy. 
There's no need for you to forgive him of anything. But he sure has permitted many bitter things to come upon us from time to time. And that is also something Joseph is dealing with. Forgiving others and forgiving God. It's a very relevant topic, isn't it? Forgiveness. So you think, maybe you're the one that said, I don't even know what that word means. Or, I've never had to forgive anybody. My life's been great. I don't think it's possible. And if that's the case, then please, like, the thing after the service when the pastor talks with people, please talk to me about that. Like, how did you do that? How did you get this far without having to worry about forgiveness or wrestle with this word or concept? Because if you have a secret, I would love to hear it. Uh, that'd be great. Um, no, but it's very relevant. I just hope that, and this is, this is the point here, is that our relationship to forgiveness uh, would be relevant and important. Um, so I hope, and perhaps it is the case, uh, but I hope not, perhaps it is the case that your relationship to this concept of forgiveness is um, similar to your relationship uh, with trains. See, trains aren't very relevant, like they once were, but you'll still see them every once in a while. I drive one particular road uh, closer to my house, um, and you have to get under a bridge uh, to go up, and that bridge above you is actually a train track. But then when you go through uh, that uh, road for the car, you're driving and eventually you come to a crossroads where that same train track you went under, you're actually coming up against and having a, a crossroad of a situation. Now, it's probably not a very common example, but I'm sure we've all at least had experience once or twice in our life in which you actually are driving on the road and you've been stopped by a dinging bell and a guardrail. It's very loud. It's right there. And it's saying... You definitely don't want to go any further right now. Because one of those big old trains that's hundreds of thousands of pounds, it's coming by. That crossroad between the road for your car and these tracks for the train, see that is very relevant to what we say when we speak about forgiveness. See, here is, here is this crossroad. It's a crossroad of what's horizontal, our forgiveness to one another, and vertical, God's forgiveness to us. Now, I'm going to read this verse, and I want you to be left with the impression of a, a dinging bell and a guardrail. And understand, this is very, very important. Matthew 6 is where Jesus says, If you... Forgive others of their trespasses. Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. That is it. See, trains can be very unforgiving. You're not going to win against a train. There's a certain crossroad to forgiveness in which it actually is analogous to God's forgiveness. So much so that it has a relationship that is conditional. If you 
horizontally are just driving your car however you want and thinking maybe I'll forgive, maybe I won't. There's a warning here. Stop. Because if you will not forgive, then you will not be forgiven. If you cannot do it laterally, the warning is you will bump up against a train that cannot be moved, which is the unforgiveness of the trice holy, eternal, living God. It'd be better to cross the tracks of a train. How urgent, you see, it is that we look at what is happening in Joseph's life. And it's an amazing thing to say. Joseph is always doing everything well. And the very last page we see, he did it again. He did it all. He could have fallen into bitterness and wrath and cruelty. And at the very last, we see him again doing what? Letting it go. Being free. He passed that final test of actually forgiving his brothers. See this crossroad that we are to forgive as God has forgiven us. That's the crossroad. That we are to forgive as God has forgiven us. Our forgiveness and God's forgiveness cross at this point. They're analogous. Matthew 6 12, Jesus tells us this much when he commands us to pray. When you pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. You see that crossing? Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. The crossroad. Colossians 3.13 Bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Bear with one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, you have, you have to forgive that way. Do you see how they cross? Do you see how our forgiveness has to match and be analogous to, similar of, the same form and substance of God's forgiveness? See, we were made in his image. And there are certain things in which you and I are not like God. But this one clearly is a way in which we are commanded to be like God. Be holy like God. Love like God. Forgive like God. Don't be omniscient like God. Don't be all-knowing. Don't be all powerful like God. No, you can't do that. But we are called to forgive like God. That's a high calling. It's something that's actually beyond us. And without understanding the gospel, without really knowing Jesus Christ, it really means nothing. It's just sentiment. So, there's a book. It's a wonderful book. It's called Unpacking Forgiveness. Chris Bronze is the man who wrote it. He defines God's forgiveness this way. And it makes sense. If you understand the gospel even a little bit, this makes sense. He says, Forgiveness is a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they would be reconciled to him. 
even though all the consequences of these sins are not necessarily eliminated. Okay? It's, it's a commit. God has a commitment. That is our gospel. That God who cannot lie says, I will forgive you. I promise. Come to the tree and bow down. You will be forgiven. It is a commitment of a God who does not change. Now, repent and believe upon the Son. And you'll have life in His name. You'll be forgiven. Of all your sins will be gone. He flips that to say then, Therefore, since we are to forgive as God has forgiven us, our forgiveness to one another, a human type of forgiveness, he defines it this way. A commitment, commitment, have that resolution in your soul. A commitment of the one who is offended to pardon graciously those who are repentant. For from all moral liability and to be reconciled to that person even though the consequences of their actions might not always be eliminated. Do you see? That is how you walk through this life clean. That is how you can walk through all the dirt and the filth of all the offense and harm that this world can bring upon you through the hands of sinful men without yourself becoming corrupted or tarnished by it is that there is a reality in which once you see what Jesus Christ has done for you in the gospel, you cannot help yourself but worship him by emulating him in that. That you yourself would be a person committed, absolutely committed, fortified in resolution to say, I will forgive any and everyone in my life for any and everything. Committed, he says, to those to pardon those graciously who repent and to bring that upon into the fruition of reconciliation. Reconciliation. And that's a hard one. But that, if you don't have that last part, what the heck is your salvation? Jesus did not forgive you to tolerate you and send you into outer darkness with his weeping and gnashing of teeth. He forgave you. To adopt you. To bring you into his house. To make a bed for you. To make a breakfast for you. To be in his father's house. That is to be reconciled with you. To have fellowship with you. To whisper by the spirit. The adoption of being the son of God upon your conscience. Every day confirming for you. That you are loved. That you are in your father's world. That the heavens are open to you. That is how he has forgiven you. And this is the part that hurts. Is that he also is calling you to do the same. That can be very challenging. So let's see if this definition works. Looking at Joseph's life. A commitment to the one who is offended. To graciously pardon all those who would be repentant unto reconciliation. Joseph's brothers come to him at the end. The father's dead. And we all know what false forgiveness is like. We always forgive somebody if they have an upper hand over you. Always try to patch up any loose ends to save face, to look good. 
Well, now the brothers are thinking, our father's dead. Jacob's not around. Did Joseph mean any of that? How could he possibly? We literally tried to kill him. He's going to kill us. (laughs) That is how the world works. That is how you naturally think in the human mind. Of course, it can't be that good. And so they come. Not knowing if it's true, they say, May Joseph, maybe Joseph will hate us. And he says, Pay us back for all the evil we did to him. That visceral, deep response for grief and sin is real because it's true. They're assuming, and rightly so, that all the wrongs in this world require restitution. All unforgiven sins require restitution. The phrase is, pay us back. Do you realize that all of God's wrath and judgment is nothing more than just paying us back? There's nothing excessive. There's nothing cruel. It's perfect justice for God to just say, now you are going to get what is coming to you. That's nothing more. Not one inch past that, lest God would be unjust. And they know. They know that they deserve something. And if you've ever struggled with a guilty conscience, you have that embedded upon your mind as well. And if you have a guilty conscience without truly understanding the love of God, then they reason this way to say, there is no way he's letting us go. The father is dead and now is the time for the true reckoning to pay us back. But look, there is a confession. A real confession. A message is sent to them. Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did, in fact, do evil to you. And that's it. Do you realize if anybody approaches you that way, you must forgive them about anything. If someone says, I wronged you, what I did was evil, there is no way under the heavens of the earth of the crucified Lord Jesus Christ in which that person cannot be forgiven by you unless you yourself be condemned. If you do not forgive others of their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. And so they do have a true confession. They never actually really were brought to this confession before. Before they simply were dismayed in his presence. They had nothing to say to him. They were afraid. And Joseph, and see, Joseph said in Genesis 45, don't even be angry with yourself. It's okay, I will take care of you. What does that really mean? You're going to tolerate me? You're just pushing along these, this whole thing, you know, how we almost killed you and ruined your whole life? And you're just, Joseph, you're just going to say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Sometimes I, I don't tie my shoes in the morning either, and we make mistakes. Like, how do you deal with that, you see? What we have here is the only proper way is actually 
speaking it. Confession is the word for repeating back to, the word for echo, to actually say what I did to you. All the offense, all the ugliness of how you would like to describe what I did to you, I will repeat that. I will not sugarcoat it. I will not cut the corners to it. If you think, speaking, let's say, a husband and wife arguing, someone offends the other, you tell me what I did to you, how I hurt you. And whatever they say, you repeat that back and you're, you're, I, you're right. It's exactly what I did. And all the ugliness of how you describe it, that was what I did. That's a real confession. You're not playing lightly with the sin. You're actually dealing with it. You see, and now that's what has to happen with him and his brothers. There's a contrition. Look at this. The brothers come and they fell down before him and they said these words. We are your servants. They sold him to slavery. We are your slaves. Restitution. We don't have terms for this. We think about it in the courtroom. Do you think about this in the way you relate to everybody? That it's actually true that when you do wrong, a true sign of real confession and repentance of that wrong is a desire from your bones to say, I want as best as possible in my ability to make it right. It's not as though they're just saying. Remember that thing how we, you know how brothers play around? You know that when we almost killed you? Hey, let's go get some lunch. You know, you don't deal with it that way. They say, remember when we sold you as a bond of slavery for life? Have our lives. We are your slaves now. Let the scales be balanced. Let the evil that we have done to you be brought back to us. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a foot for a foot, a life for a life. We sold you into slavery. Let us be slaves. They want to actually make it right. They are truly not looking for cheap grace and just not looking to get by so that their brother with all the power doesn't hurt them. They are wrong and they want to make it right. The beauty of it is this. Pure, free, gracious forgiveness. He repeats what he said before. Back in Genesis 45. He meant what he said. When they came to him, he wept. Some people have said his weeping is a grief that they don't understand his heart. They actually think he's not that gracious. He's more like us. He wouldn't forgive that way. I know I couldn't forgive that way, Judah might think, or Simeon might think, or one of the brothers might think. I couldn't forgive that way. And he weeps and says, you don't even know me. He says, most particularly, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
to bring about that many people would be kept alive. Forgiveness and reconciliation. So do not fear, he says. I will provide for you and your family and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke these words to them. The warmth of the weeping with tears. He is not. That's real forgiveness, you see. Don't forget about it. It's okay. Now you go away, please, because you're annoying. No, no, no. I want to take care of you. Weeping over the fact that they would think he would try to do them harm. I want to take care of you and your family. And he comforted them. He spoke to them. He entered back into fellowship with them in some way. Do you realize if that's not what forgiveness is, you have no chance to life. If God's forgiveness is excising you to outer darkness, to just letting you go in a neutral way, saying in some way, fine, your sins, I'll try to forget them, but just leave me alone. That's called hell. That's not called being in the house of God. That's not called heaven. So when we forgive, it is a remarkable thing to think that he is actually able to forgive this much. It shocks their brothers. You see when you look at the cross? You see when you look to Christ, you say, there is no way he could forgive like that. But he's not like you, you see. He weeps saying, you don't even know how much capability I have of love. I am the eternal son of God. I've been given the Holy Spirit at the beginning of John. Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit without measure. There is no end to the anointing that the Messiah has and his ability to exercise all the perfections of God's glory upon you. You cannot exhaust it. And in some way, you and I are called to glorify God that way. To try, resting upon the Holy Spirit, to be given the ability to forgive like this. The crossroads of forgiveness is nothing more than forgiving like God. The crossroads of forgiveness is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is, the one who is God became like man and in forgiveness converged the crossroads of all of this on the cross. He was crucified. With a body like you and me, this is not platonic philosophy. He was a man who forgave out of extreme suffering. In Luke 23, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him with the other criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And it had to be for God to show us. While the incarnate son had nails in his hands for you. These are the words he says. Father forgive them. For they know not what they do. It had to be at that time. 
the fulcrum of all of God's forgiveness in the God-man and all of our example for human forgiveness. There at that moment in which the man who is God forgiving all those who ever wronged him. If he doesn't say those words there, you and I have nothing. It's just a man on a tree. But that is God making a verbal declaration from beginning to echo through the millennia to say at this moment... I am committed at this point on this cross to forgive. While you put the nails in my hands, I have vowed I will forgive. Come to me and bow and repent. Those words almost infuse the cross with its divine, majestic, cleansing power. Backed by the promises of the unchanging God. Father, forgive them. There's even enough power in that cross for you to do the same. We see here in this slide, if we have a minute to pull it up, you'll see it in the insert. And I hope that this slide bothers you because it bothers me. I want this slide to bother you. I, I wanted to make it an insert so you put it on your fridge. It's a bothersome little thing. It keeps you from any other way. Over Christmas, for some reason, I got into playing chess uh, on my phone. And uh, I hate it when I get in checkmate, which is very often. And there's no other place to go. You can't move anywhere. This is the Lord's checkmate. There's nowhere you can go apart for forgiveness. It all centers on the cross. You see... The crossroads, we are forgiven and forgiving. God's method of forgiveness, as we see in Romans 4, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Shortly after, Paul says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. You see? There's a connection to the reality that if we believe, the ungodly are justified. And it is faith that gets us righteousness. That is, it's a conditional forgiveness. Not everybody is forgiven by the Lord. Those who come to Jesus Christ are forgiven. Luke 24, our side of things, the sinner's side. Jesus says these words after being resurrected, explaining everything to his disciples. It is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations. Do you see that process? Repentance brings forgiveness. Or the other side of repentance is faith. We need a faithful repentance or a believing repentance. You turn from your sins and turn unto Christ. Or you turn away from your sins and you have to turn to Christ. Because your sins in Christ are the opposite. You have to do one and the other at the same time. And if you do such a thing, you're forgiven. But then we see horizontally. In Matthew 18. The offended and the offender. There is no way to avoid this. It is the perfect checkmate. You can't say, well, I'm offended, but they didn't come to me. And you can't say, well, I offended them, but they didn't come to me. 
Because in either case, you have no other move but to go to the cross. If your brother sins against you, that is, if you're the one that's offended, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens, take another one with you. Doesn't listen. And he goes on and says, but if he refuses even to listen, tell it to the church. And refuses to listen even to the church, tell it. Then he becomes to you a Gentile or tax collector. That's going up against the train. There's nothing. You're, you're considered an unbeliever. That's how important this all is. And if you are the offender, if you've done something, and no one's pushing you about it except your own conscience, that's enough. You're also obliged. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, stop your false worship. Leave your gift there at the altar, and first be reconciled to your brother And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going on your way. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the garden you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you never get out until you've paid the last penny. Both of these end with perdition. Both of these end outside of the Father's house. That's how important forgiveness is. It is a divine crossroad. That if our horizontal forgiveness is understood to interconnect, cross along the vertical forgiveness of the cross. That means then, if this horizontal forgiveness is not present, then you have run into the train of an unforgiving God. The one who is offended is treated as an unbeliever, a Gentile or tax collector, and the one offended is not getting out of prison until he's paid every last penny. Another image of perdition and hell. There is no other way. The reason being, of course, is because God wants to be glorified. I'll close with this remarkable story that I hope it would serve you well. In this book, Unpacking Forgiveness, the author, Christopher, speaks about another Chris. In December of 20, of 17, uh, 1974, that is, uh, a 10 year old boy uh, named Chris Carrier uh, was getting off his bus just around this time that year, uh, shortly before Christmas. It was his last day of school before Christmas break. And he got off his bus, and there was a man named Chuck, this is what he called himself, and said, You know, you look a lot like your father. See, I'm really good friends with your father. I'm actually putting together a special birthday party for him. Would you care to help me? Ten-year-old boy, flattered and proud. He looks like his dad. This guy knows my dad. Sure. Of course, he got in his motor home with this guy named Chuck. Felt bothered by the fact that he didn't recognize any of the roads. He was out in some remote location. Chuck went to the back of his motorhome and came back with an ice pick and a cigarette. And he began to stab the little boy and burn him with a cigarette. Chuck was fired for drinking by Chris's uncle. And he thought he could return the favor by torturing his son. 
Chris is no way to resist. He's only 10 years old. He's a full-grown man. But see, Chris was a church kid. As the author of Unpacking Forgiveness explains, he was a church kid, and while he was being tortured, he said to the guy, which I would have to imagine at least caused him to pause for a whole second, he said, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Imagine the 10-year-old little boy saying that to the man brutalizing him. Needless to say, he stopped. He detained him in this travel car and kept driving. He drove to the Florida Everglades. And he kicked Chris out of the car. And he put him over near some bushes and shot him in the head. Now, Chris laid there unconscious for six days. The day after Christmas, a hunter was walking through and found him. Obviously, search parties and prize rewards were laid out for his parents. They couldn't find anything about him. This hunter found him, and he was still alive. The bullet went clean through his brain and came out the other side. He didn't even suffer any brain damage. He only lost vision in his left eye. Later, recovering, he couldn't remember much of the event, and he thought Christmas was coming soon. But he was alive and well. They put people together they suspected of the crime. The police thought maybe a man named David McAllister would be the person. And they put him before Chris in a lineup with others. And Chris was so traumatized he couldn't remember the man. And so David McAllister was right in front of him on a lineup, and Chris never called him out. And the man went away. Twenty years later, a police officer called Chris and said, We have found the man who kidnapped you. His name is David McAllister. He's in a nursing home and dying. Do you want to see him? And Chris said yes. And he went to him. David McAllister, ironically, was blind in both eyes from glaucoma. Chris came to him and grabbed his hand. See, David is dying, and he confessed to the crime that he was never caught of. Confessed. Chris came and said, I forgive you. Now get away from me. No, he didn't. The next day he came by with his daughters. He shared the gospel with them. David committed his life to Christ. In the course of one week, Chris visited him five times every day. Dave McAllister said, he is the best friend I've ever had. He actually loved me and forgave me because they are the same. Now, it's possible 
Well, it better be because our life depends upon it. It is possible. Judah dipped his brother's garments in blood. He dipped Joseph's garment in blood and sold him to slavery. And God promised upon Judah's life in Genesis 49, 11, Judah, you will be so blessed that your ancestors will wash their garments in wine. They will wash their vestures in the blood of grapes. What gets rid of blood stains? The blessings and the sweetness of red wine. He took his brother's garments and tried to kill him. And God returned blessings upon his head. I hope you see that that is us. So let us forgive as we have been forgiven. In Jesus' name. Dear Father God, we thank you. We understand, we confess, Lord, we are... We do not bear your image the way you intended it. But Lord, we ask that by your grace and the power of your spirit, that you would restore that image in us. That in any moment that we see this suffering in our life, we would understand it is from your hand and that we have been given a unique opportunity to suffer and forgive so that you might be glorified and that we might look like you. Lord, I pray you to do this particularly in us as a church that it would be a remarkable thing for the world to know that we have a love that is truly divine and human. In Jesus' name, amen.